Kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you today. Thank you so much for being here. I do appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Longtime presenting sponsors of the show. We've got a good one lined up for you today, and I'm going to tell you all about it here momentarily. But first, a quick update. Just got back from Montana. Spent eight days in the backcountry uh, outside of Missoula chasing those bugling bulls. And while I personally didn't find success uh, as far as tagging out, our group, um, my friend Chisholm Cook, who I always elk hunt with, and then also Ty Stubblefield from Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and formerly of Born and Raised Outdoors, we did manage one bull between the three of us. And I flung a few arrows, so uh, it was a great trip overall. Learned a lot. Uh, Ty's been elk hunting a lot longer than Chisholm or I. I think we've got 11 seasons combined between us. He's been doing it for 22 years. So our goal was really just to try to learn as much as we could from all the knowledge that he's amassed as far as you know, communicating with elk, knowing what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. Um, it was a, It was definitely an educational trip. So one that I will take and, and use to become a better elk hunter going forward. Uh, but we'll get into all of that next week um, in detail as both Ty and Chisholm will be here for our annual elk episode. Uh, but what's going on this week? Well, let me tell you. You know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos, the one granddaddy passed down and if it looks anything like mine, it's probably still got mud caked on it from waterfowl seasons that have come and gone. But here's what we're doing today. Uh, our good friend and host of DSC's Trailing the Hunter's Moon, Blake Barnett, will join me for the duration. We've got a myriad of topics to discuss, everything from international travel with firearms, um, planning an international trip, everything that logistically goes into that because uh, it does require a lot of planning and detail. We'll discuss that. Then um, we'll also get into various other things like his recent trip to the Coburg Peninsula in Australia where he hunted Bantang. And I think he also took an Asiatic uh, water buffalo on that trip as well. So we're going to discuss uh, that trip to a very unique and relatively unexplored part of the world there in the Australian outback. Uh, it was actually at a national park where they are pro hunting and understand that hunting keeps the lights on imagine that uh folks not shying away from that reality it's something we don't see a lot in this world sadly uh, although you and i both know hunting and fishing facilitate wildlife conservation if it pays it stays that's the bottom line that's the truth uh, and so anyway we'll get into that hunt with blake and uh, and talk about the direction of the hunting community what's his biggest fear uh, he's a lifelong hunter and conservationist. Uh, we'll discuss our thoughts on the direction of our community, the uh, challenges that we face moving forward. So uh, lots of 
interesting stuff to get into with Blake. Um, oh, what's his favorite big game caliber? Uh, he's taken quite a few Cape Buffaloes and has hunted dangerous game all over the globe. So we'll pick his brain on that as I prepare for my first Cape Buffalo hunt in the summer of 2020. Uh, that's what's on the docket for today. We're going to be all over the place uh, covering a lot of different stuff. I'm certainly looking forward to it. couple other things to mention here. How about a, how about a quick giveaway? I've got an autographed copy of Hank Shaw's uh, cookbook, Duck, Duck, Goose. Uh, Hank sent this over, and uh, I'd like to get into the hands of one of you guys or gals. So why don't you just email the word... Oh, maybe it's two words. Wild game. That's wild game. To Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. And if you haven't uh, read any of Hank's culinary works, well, you're doing yourself a disservice because he is a, a maestro in the kitchen and has got some fabulous recipes for everything from pheasants to rabbits to moose to ducks, deer, you name it. All encompassing. So check that out. Uh, don't forget to send in your best hunting, fishing, or outdoor photo as well. We've still got our photo of the month contest uh, each month, and then our 12 monthly winners will square off at the end of the year for a chance to be our grand prize winner, and that means uh, they'll get to hunt trophy axis deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas next spring. So uh, send those in to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com as well. Let's knock out a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by our good friend and TV show host, Blake Barnett of DSC's Trailing the Hunter's Moon. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I've done all I can. I've been a good man for you. But your heart's cold as ice. Mine's paying the price for love. Hey y'all, spring is here, and that means a lot of things, but specifically, your lawn is about to become your own worst nightmare. That's why I use JC's Landscaping. They do everything from lawn and landscape maintenance to fertilization and weed control. New premium sod installations. Hey, you need a French drain? I had to have them put in a French drain a couple years ago. They do that too. Landscaping updates, makeovers, stone borders, patios, and much more. Serving the North Dallas and surrounding areas, you can find them at jclandscapingllc.com and tell them Cable sent you. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. It's the end of the season, that's a pretty good reason for me to be headed down south, down to Laguna Madre. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. My kind of day on Padres, the name of that one there, from Larry Joe Taylor, 
Thank you so much for being here. I do appreciate it. Uh, thanks also for telling your friends about the show as it continues to grow, and that is by and large because of you guys. So thank you for that as the podcast downloads continue to trend upwards as far as the number of folks downloading the show each week. And, of course, everyone tuning in on the terrestrial radio, <laughs> I appreciate you immensely as well. Um, we're about to welcome... This week's guest, uh, Blake Barnett, to the broadcast. But first, this segment is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'm a proud member. I know Blake is as well. And uh, I'd like to invite you to become a part of this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and conservation. To do so, head over to biggame.org and check us out. Love to have you. Uh, with that being said... Let's bring him on right now. He is the co-host of the very well-received DSC's Trailing the Hunter's Moon. It's my pleasure to welcome Blake Barnett to the show. Well, I appreciate it, Cable. I, I, this opportunity to be able to, to visit with you on your radio show is, uh, is, is an opportunity I've been waiting for. I mean, I've been following you for, for a long time. <laughs> well, and it's so crazy because, um, I mean, I, I'd seen you. We'd run into each other like... Uh, the DSC convention and stuff, and we both live in Texas uh, for most of the year. But I think uh, we see each other more at airports. Yeah, yeah I was going <laughs> to say. On, like, on flights. Yeah, our first really in-depth conversation was, I guess it was three years ago. It was my first uh, safari. You know, you're an old hand. You've been to Africa many times. Um, but we ended up sitting next to each other. It was totally random. <laughs> you were going to yeah. like, do a rhino, some rhino conservation work, and I'm going to hunt uh, my first trip and. It was cool to to get to sit there on that flight from um, I think I guess Johannesburg to Port Elizabeth for a couple yep. hours and just uh, you know pick your brain and and talk about some of the things you'd experienced over there. So that was, but it was odd though. Just hey oh there you are we're in Africa together, <laughs> Ran, but That's didn't right. have any idea. It's cool. Yeah. Um, for sure. You know, social media is so fast paced and we, we see each other and we we meet so many people through the social media rooms and then it's kind of like when you bump into them at airports or. Yeah, and we're in a public setting. You're like, hey, I know you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I do remember that clearly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was doing was going down to do some rhino conservation work. And, yeah, and, what, and down the Eastern Cape. So, uh -huh. which is which is yeah. crazy because then this summer I I kind of did the same thing. Uh, you know, I had to get my feet wet before we moved up to to that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it was a very interesting yeah. experience, no doubt. Um, Africa is one of those places that that. Uh, it gets in your soul and it, and it, it calls you back time and time again. It, it, that's how it's been for me. I, you know, I've almost lost count on how many times I've been over there, but it's a long way. It's a long trip over there, but the, yeah. the guy that goes over there for the first time, he'll go again at some point he'll go again and then he'll go again and he'll go again. You probably warned me about that uh, on that. I'm sure on that flight, you're like, <laughs> just be aware. This isn't a, this isn't a one and done type thing. And, and then here we are. Uh, yeah. I've already got, I've gone three times and already have dates booked for uh, this coming summer. And <laughs> fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Anyway, I uh, wanted to uh, to talk about your recent Australia trip. Um, first of all, how long were you over there? Well, I had a uh, my intentions were to be over there for about twelve days. Mm -hmm. uh, my trip was a little short. Uh, I had uh, you know some travel issues, which. Oh uh, yeah, I saw about I saw that not. stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh I've been so fortunate with all my world travels that um I mean, you know, typical minor delays here and there that everybody's accustomed to, but um 
there was a point uh, where I thought the good Lord didn't want me to go to Australia because travel getting over there was uh, was just hectic. I dealt with canceled flights and and uh, delays, which caused me to miss connections. And so I ended up being uh, almost three days late uh, getting to Australia. So uh, I was in country for nine days. Uh, okay. So still a still a good amount of time, but uh, should have been yeah. there twelve days. Yeah. So is that your worst experience uh, travel wise? Hands down. I mean, it started <laughs> with a it started with a canceled flight in San Antonio, Texas. You know where I'm from, and and uh, so my first flight, which was to fly up to your part of the state, you know, to DFW, uh-huh. and, and then fly out. And uh, that first canceled flight in San Antonio turned into put me on a another flight an hour later, which ended up being three hours delayed. Which getting into Fort Worth, I had to. Uh, it was, this was the first time that I was not able to check my luggage, meaning both you know my, my bag of clothes and, and my, uh, my firearm. Uh-huh. I just had two checked-in bags all the way to my final destination. I was the airline company was going to make me claim my firearm uh, in DFW and recheck it. And so, with all the delays and, and all that, and, and the weight of having to claim that firearm and recheck it, I missed my connection to. Uh, from DFW to Sydney hmm. uh, on my departure day. So I ended up having to overnight in, in DFW and then spend all day the next day in, in the Dallas area and fly out, supposed to fly out close to midnight. And uh, we were like two hours and 45 minutes delayed leaving uh, Dallas to Sydney, which cost me to miss my connection in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> it is you a know, to get to, yeah. to Darwin, and uh, you know the interesting thing about um, all that was, you know, you've done a lot of travel with firearms as well. You you know the routine. Uh, you know that going into different countries requires different permitting situations. You know, and in Australia. Um, you know, Australia is not a very gun-friendly country. You know, they took the guns from their citizens yeah. over there. And, they they vetoed uh, them is know, what they did. They did. Yeah. And you, know, <laughs> you can you can own a firearm over there, but you have to obtain a firearm license, and there's a whole process and all that. And so even as a non-resident, um, you basically follow the same laws as, as a resident of, of, of Australia. And uh, so there's a lot of paperwork and all that to do. But with that being said, you know, on the travel side, being a non-resident like us coming over there, uh, the permits are only good. They're not good for the entire continent. They're, they're, you know, you register those permits basically by the state, hmm. you know. So I was I was permitted uh, to, of course, arrive in Sydney because that was my itinerary. And uh, and then I was permitted in uh, the Northern Territory uh, of Australia, you know, the northern part of the continent where I was going to be hunting. So with my flight delays and missing my connection in Sydney, I was uh, my travel agent who is travel with guns here out of San Antonio, Texas, which is to me they're the best because travel with guns. I mean, they live to, by their name. Right. They know the permit. They know the permits for traveling with firearms, you know, globally. And uh, their Texas-based company exhibit at DSC as well. Um, you know, they they were lifesavers at, at, at the end of the day when it came to all of this from the from the point of my first flight being canceled in san antonio they were calling me on the phone putting me on other flights but uh and then working around me having to move around in australia with a firearm you know there was mm. a point where they thought i was going to have to overnight in brisbane 
which legally I could not do because Brisbane's in another province or another state of Australia, and I did not have a firearm license or permit wow. for that area. Yeah. So it made it a little bit tricky, which caused me to have to be delayed and sit over in long layovers in, in Sydney and you know, till I finally got to my final destination, which was which was Darwin up in the north Northern Territory and uh and then of course we hunted a uh, good full day's drive pretty much east of, of, of Darwin. So okay. you know, challenges of traveling, you know, as a hunter and, and going into countries that aren't really gun friendly, but, but allow hunting and just having to jump through the loopholes and, and do everything. It made it, it made it a little difficult, but we, uh, we survived. <laughs> yeah. And, and you talked about the travel agent. I, I use a uh, hunter support and out of, uh, Johannesburg, I think is where they're based out of. Um, and it, it's invaluable. Like uh, it doesn't matter where you're going. A, a good travel agent who knows the gun laws is, is a must. If you're, tr- if you're traveling internationally, uh, you just, it's worth it. And it's, it's very inexpensive. It's like a couple hundred dollars and they take care of all your permitting. They you know, have someone meet you. At least they have someone meet us in Africa, take us yeah. through the police station, take care of the permits. I mean, just it's, yeah. it's it makes it so yeah, easy. It, it's, it's worth every penny of it, even if it was $500. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it, you're right though. It's not expensive. You know, I think fees for travel with guns kind of vary depending on, you know, the, the, the travel itinerary and, and the uh, the work to get things done, including, you know, yeah, firearm permits, licenses, um, even visas, you know, and uh, I've, I've traveled with guns, Steve Turner and his group for the last 10 plus years. And, uh, you know, they, they do all the booking for, for myself. And mm-hmm. then of course, you know, my co-host, good friend, Larry Wysoon and all of our, all of our production yeah. uh, team. So, you know, it, it, it what, what I find is, you know, people that like or want to adventure abroad and hunt abroad don't think about those processes. You know what I mean? They they think they can, um, you know, save 150 bucks or 200 bucks by booking their own itinerary, and they don't they don't think about the, you know, the future of the trip and arriving and getting there and having firearms and that it's not like home. Yeah. You know. Oh, and you've invested so much money in that trip, you know. I mean, like, yeah. Why skip yeah. on why skip on the on the yeah, uh, the mean, travel even, agent? Uh, even Australia, you know, this trip that I did, uh, you know, there's a process to even leave the country with the firearm. Uh-huh. You know, you don't just you know just because you entered the country with firearm and you're a non-resident, um, you know, you've basically registered that firearm with the Australian government. You know, um, coming into the country, so deporting, you know, going home, there's a process and paperwork and approval that has to be done by government officials, you know. Oh yeah, they and, want that uh, firearm leaving with you, for sure. Yeah, for sure, and they and and everything, it, you know, of course there's always taxes and charges so that they can make their make their money and and uh you know, I I departing the country um which you know, my departing I, I departed Sydney to go back to Dallas and then San Antonio. Uh, but working with a government agent there at um, with a customs agent at the Sydney airport, I mean, he was very thankful and said, man, you know, I can't I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being uh, organized. Um, and, you know, because most people that come through here, they don't have a clue, you know. And I said, well, I, it, it, I give credit to the travel company, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, probably had I tried to do things on my own, which I never do on the on that side of travel with firearms. Uh, I would be lost. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and, you know, and, and I would have done things wrong and probably put me in, put me in jail over there. Yeah. Well, obviously, most countries don't have as liberal gun laws as we do. And you know, for example, the first time I went black bear hunting in Alberta, I was I wanted to shoot one with a bow and one with my ten millimeter. And I'm talking to the outfitter. He's like, "You can't bring a pistol." I'm like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, no, you cannot bring a pistol into Canada." I'm like. Golly, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. 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 And there's a lot of hunters that are, you know, I don't want to say misinformed. I mean, you know, they just aren't up to date and it's not it's not talked about, you know, uh so much when you book a hunt or at our hunting and trade shows, you know, and uh and I think people overlook uh the fact that there are, you know, there are professionals, there are travel agencies at our trade shows like the DSC convention. You know, Steve Turner and Travel with Guns exhibit there as as well as others mm-hmm. from around the world, uh, you know, where hunters can <clears throat> literally book their hunt and walk over to, you know, one of the travel agency booths and provide, a, you know, dates for an itinerary and, and have all of that taken care of for them yeah. for a very low fee cost. But it's not on everybody's um, radar, I guess you could say. But traveling abroad, you know, if you're going to start traveling internationally with firearms, that's highly recommended in my book. Yeah, your your outfitter yep. will be able to recommend someone that they trust if you don't have anyone, you know. Um, For sure. So. For sure. Um, and it's so easy, you know. Once that you miss that first flight, it's like the rock rolling down the hill. It's like <laughs> your trip. Like you said, three days. Yeah. You missed three days. Um, Three days, yeah. you know, and, and for for us, you know, I mean, when you're in the media business, you know, I'm counting, I'm counting the days I'm losing in the field filming, and you know, my production team was already there. I I, I hired. Um, funny enough, I mean, I have a team here in the United States that are Texas based that go pretty much everywhere with Larry and I together. But um, I also have started using some guys that are from other parts of the world. Um, who I've who I've discovered who are extremely talented, and so for Australia, I I took a I took a very talented photographer, field producer from Cape Town, South Africa, actually, mm-hmm. who I've worked for you know worked with when I've when I've gone over to Africa, and then my re- my only reason for doing so was that the flight itinerary to fly him from Cape Town to Australia was half the cost you know as a as a U.S. ticket you yeah. know, so he was there and had to wait on me you know and. And uh, it's expensive to hire these guys, and they've got to get paid either way. You know what I mean? Whether I'm there or not, yeah. you know they've they've left their home, they've left their family, and uh, they're there to do a job. And so, you know, it's stressful. <laughs> sure, owning a television media business and not being able to be somewhere and having people on the clock that you're paying and and not uh, not getting done. Plus the fact of just missing the days being out there in uh, in the bush hunting. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the worst I've had was um, I did this trapline trip up in British Columbia, and I was supposed to fly home on Saturday in time to get back to watch the Super Bowl uh, with friends and family. <laughs> and next thing you know, I'm sitting at the outfitter's house watching a football game that he knows nothing about, doesn't care about. And yeah. uh, he's yeah. like, he's like, really? This is, I was like, man, this is the Super Bowl. He's like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then. And then I had to fly, so that was, uh, I was trying to get to Vancouver out of Smithers, and there's only a flight out of Vancouver to Dallas every other day, and I had to get back because my wife had to go back to work, and, and they're like, well, uh, you can fly to Toronto and get back to Dallas that way, and I'm like, that's like across the, the freaking country. country. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, ended, yeah, I had to fly to, from Vancouver to Toronto to get to Dallas, so 
uh, it does yeah. happen. But the thing is, you just you just have to be flexible if you're gonna if you're gonna travel, and it, and it's not just you know hunting. I mean, yeah, the firearms add a, a little red tape, but uh, if you're gonna travel to do anything, you got to be flexible because that yeah. stuff does happen. Um, Blake, let's do this. I, I want to talk yeah. obviously about this hunt, but we do need to work in a quick break. Uh, are you cool to stick around? Absolutely. Good deal. And that segment, by the way, brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. It is hunting season, y'all. But that doesn't mean it's too late to get that big chingone put up on your property, especially if you've got young kids like myself. This is the perfect way to introduce them to deer hunting. It's a blind that has carpet. It has cup holders. It has windows for archery and rifle hunting. Not that you're going to be archery hunting with uh, six and four-year-olds like me, but... Uh, they had a great time. We shot a doe out of it last year. Had all three kids and the wife in there. It's the Big Chingyon, and you can find it as well as All Seasons. Entire lineup of blinds and feeders right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. We'll be right back with more from Blake Barnett of DSC's Hunting the Trailer's Moon Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. By the way, uh, if you're interested in finding my weekly playlist, and, uh, you know, the tunes that are played throughout the show every week, you can just look me up on Spotify, and they're all right there for you. Uh, so listen to them at your own convenience. Um, thanks to Dallas Safari Club, our title sponsor, Lone Star Beer, and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Certainly appreciate their support. And I appreciate you guys for tuning in as we are visiting with our good buddy Blake Barnett today, uh, co-host of DSC's Trailing the Hunter's Moon. We're going to jump back into that conversation as he just returned from Bantang hunting on Australia's uh, Korberg Peninsula. So interesting stuff that we're going to tackle here momentarily. But first, this segment is proudly brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. If you haven't seen the new Axion handheld thermal monocular you need to check it out it's pocket sized despite its small stature it still gives you a hell of a bang for your buck Uh, you can find it as well as pulsar's entire lineup of thermal and night vision optics right there at pulsarnv.com with that being said blake appreciate you sticking around man certainly enjoying the conversation me too buddy i want to talk a little bit about yourself before we dive into this uh, australian outback experience Uh, obviously you're from san antonio but 
did you grow up hunting? And then how did that see you uh, end up as the co-host of, of this very popular hunting show? And I, I think you I think you actually spent some time behind the camera before transitioning to, uh, you know, the talent. I did. I did. You're, you're exactly right. Uh, born and raised uh, in San Antonio, grew up north of San Antonio, right on the edge of where the hill country started. And uh, for as long as I can remember, I, you know, as a little boy, I mean, being outside was was what I wanted to do, where I wanted to be. Was, I mean, from playing in the dirt to uh, my parents did divorce when I was at an early age. My mother was a uh, big outdoor person as well, so was my father. But my mom's uh, side of the family also had a farm, farm and ranch up in uh, Kendall County, up in the Bernie Kerrville Comfort area of uh, that part of the hill country. So at a very early uh you know, age early in life was I introduced to uh, kind of the outdoor lifestyle, you know, hunting and fishing. Uh, mm-hmm. My dad, you know, took me to shoot my first deer at a very early age. My grandfather on my on my mother's side, you know, also took me fishing and taught me all those things that, you know, probably starting at the age of three or four, as far as I can remember. Um, growing up, you know, having that hobby, I also... Uh, was raised around an equine world environment with horses. And so, uh, not knowing that I could turn the, you know, my passion of the outdoors into a full-time, you know, career lifestyle, I pursued, uh, an equine position in Mm -hmm. the equine industry, uh, out of school. And, uh, but I mean that 100%, uh, funded my hobby and my passion, which was to, go on a big hunting or fishing excursion somewhere in the world, you know, which is when I first started uh, getting my taste of international travel, you know, taking a two week vacation to go on a safari in Africa or do something like that. But, but with that background in the equine industry, which was, I was a professional horse trainer. I I trained and showed horses for other clients and owners. And we, we, we hauled around uh, on a national level across, you know, the United States, there was uh, a lot of, uh, you know, video work that that we used in our business to uh to sell you know high-end uh, performance horses and uh you know i was fascinated with with photography and in uh in videography at, at the same time and just as i got older and, and uh had a few accidents i you know was starting to to doubt my future of having that career for the rest of my life not wanting to be old and decrepit and crippled or <laughs> have an accident that would, you know what I mean, would, yeah. would end everything and uh, started to just uh, try to figure out, you know, my way. I, I, you know, looking back at it today, I wasn't uh, as happy as I am now. And I think it's, you know, I, I finally took a risk and said, I want to do something that I absolutely love. And uh, so I sold my uh, entire business that I had built for 15 years and went to and just with luck and and with you know with a little bit of luck but also having a contact in the industry um you may know kim hicks through uh kim hicks uh was the developer of the bog pod shooting sticks mm-hmm. but uh you know which he sold in uh but before that kim was also very known in the outdoor industry as as a writer and as a producer at one time, uh, early in that part of his career, he had a magazine called the Texas Hunting Directory magazine. And uh, when the internet really started coming on strong, he sold that magazine. And uh, when and this is also when outdoor television 
started to really become popular, he sold the magazine and, and produced a television show called Hunting 201 Beyond the Basics, which was very similar to the style of show that we produce now with, with doing uh, covering stories and documentaries of hunts uh, around the world as mm-hmm. well with uh, with big partners, uh, North American manufacturing brands behind him. Like uh, at that time, I think it was Winchester. And, you know, he, he offered me a, a job, you know, with little to no experience on in the hunting industry as far as media production or any of that. And I just jumped in with both feet at an early age and, and uh, Kim opened a lot of doors for me, which led me to meeting Larry Wysoon and, you know, other outdoor writers, other outdoor personalities, other production companies. And uh, here we are 18 years later. And uh, yeah, I have been working with Larry Wysoon, who uh, I call him the godfather of the industry. He's, he's truly a legend just like so many others, like Jim Zumbo and Jim Shockey. And I mean, Jim Shockey, I think even owes a lot of credit to, uh, to Larry for helping him along his way. And, you know, early in his career as an outfitter. I've read so many articles that Larry's penned and, uh, you know, had him on the show for discuss, not so much the TV show, but just different things that he's done, like pioneering, uh, handgun hunting, you know, uh, all kinds of like crazy things. I think, one time I was reading this article where he was calling javelinas or something. I mean, just like, Oh yeah. Just yeah, crazy stuff is, like that. Yeah. You know, that's uh but yeah, he's, he's definitely been there and done all of it. There's no doubt. He has, and he has a passion. Uh, I mean, it is a true passion, you know? I mean, I think that, uh, I admire it greatly and, and uh, I'm very thankful to, to the, the path that he has paved for me as well as others who have, who helped me along the way as well. Kim Hicks being, one of those guys as well. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, I think I just saw vision and I had an opportunity and I, I, uh, man, I took it. I ran with it. And I've never looked back, you know, not thinking that I would ever be in front of the camera, but just production work was fun. Field producing, mm-hmm. being able to travel the world and capture things through the lens, you know, and through video and create and tell stories. Um, that weren't about me, but that were about, you know, Larry and others. I mean, I, I worked with other personality as well, um, along the way, um, for different, for different production companies. And, um, you know, even when you, even when you do that as a job, you know, you're very much a part of, of that moment and that experience and that story, you know, though you're not receiving all, all the credit. Um, I think it's just personal value that, you know, you know what you've, you've done and what you've accomplished and it was shared as a team. And even though somebody else gets the light. So for me, I, it was the fact that I got to get on an airplane and I earned my Delta miles. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I got to go just share some ex, just amazing experiences. And then, um, yeah, Larry Weissing, I started working for Larry, 15 years ago now probably uh-huh. maybe 16 years ago now he was he was uh the face and the personality of several different uh hunting shows over the years um when i first went full-time with him was during a, a series called winchester world of white tales mm-hmm. which was back when we had uh the versus channel or nbc sports i think it might have been first or after i can't remember and uh followed him around with uh all the tv shows that he had a hand in and then uh one day he came to me and said, you know, I'm going to do my own thing instead of doing things for other producers and other production houses. He said he had written a book called Trailing the Hunter's Moon that had won a bunch of awards. And I said, no, what a perfect title, you know, 
it was full of stories and full of past adventures and that were from around the globe. I mean, even though he was labeled as Mr. Whitetail because yeah. of his wildlife biology and, and uh, wildlife science, you know, background from Texas A&M and uh, had a lot to do with, with the whitetail deer here in the state, um, he was very accomplished also at, at hunting globally. So the book Trail on the Hunter's Moon shared a lot of those stories of those other adventures outside of the whitetail world. And so uh, he and I started to produce that series, and here we are today. I think we're in season 13. And that's when uh, you transitioned to in front of the camera. Yeah, three years ago, we uh, had enough support from sponsors that came to us and said, hey, we'd love to support this project, you know, more than just on a six-month, quarter three, quarter four presence, if you guys are willing to put up the effort and, and the work to produce it for 52 weeks, you know, all four quarters, which was commitments to the contracts for the networks with 26 originals. And yeah. uh, so that's 26 hunts, and that was just physically too many. That's too many hunts for one guy to do. You know? Oh, I mean, Larry's getting up there in age for sure. And, and I don't got... care how old you are. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean <laughs> 13, 13 hunts a year is, is a stretch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, especially when you're adding the international twist to it. And that's, that is certainly not being negative or not complaining. It, it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot of work, you know? I mean, my personal and, life, uh, I look at, my wife puts up with a bunch of crap. I mean, she really does. We got three kids and I'd say I'm gone probably one week a month. Um, yeah. and, and that's, that's taxing on a family, uh, no doubt. So, uh, yeah, 100%. I mean, if you combine what, what Larry and I have done for the past three years, with 26 originals, I mean, he and I are both gone over 200 days out of the year, yeah. you know, and, uh, I mean, his wife, Marianne is, is a sweetheart, a saint and, and, uh, you know, they've been, they've been married for more than 50 years now, have the most beautiful relationship and I can't find anybody would marry me cause I'm never home. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it comes with a sacrifice, um, but man, I, you know, I, I believe in that saying that if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, you know, so absolutely uh, very blessed to have the, have the opportunity, but I also owe it to, um, uh, a lot of other people that, that, uh, I guess just recognized my, my dedication, you know, and, sure. and uh, gave me the, the, the opportunity. So that's, that's where I'm at today. And that is my background. So I've, I've been in the television producing business for 17, 18 years now, but a good 15, 16 years of that have been partnered with Larry Wysoon, and um, it's been the best time. We we still he's a he's a mentor. He's a he's a best friend. He's a brother. He's a father. I mean, he's just he's the coolest dude in, in the industry in my in my books. Well, you'd be hard pressed to find a better mentor uh, in the outdoor industry, no doubt about that. Uh, Blake, we're going to take a quick break as we've kind of been building momentum towards this very unique opportunity uh, where you got to hunt Bantang in one of Australia's national parks. And we'll continue that discussion next. Uh, that segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of. Not here, not in Australia, nowhere. But we all want it. So if you're ready to take that plunge, make that dream your reality, whether that's for recreating, ranching, uh, hunting, fishing, or just to get the hell out of the big city, give Lone Star Ag Credit a call. They've been doing it for over 100 years. They'd love to make your dream a reality. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. We'll be right back with more on the Lone Star Outdoor I Show. Found her on the first warm day, rain it washed the snow away. 
gone for wood and lost her way back home. Night can believe in ghosts, but some nights I get pretty close. When the North Dakota went among. Hi, I'm Luke Anderson, the owner of Colt Construction. I'm also a proud outdoorsman, proud to support the Lone Star Outdoor Show. With roots dating back generations of hard work in the outdoors, I take pride in serving the citizens of the Lone Star State. There are tons of so-called roofing contractors in North Texas, but having a qualified, experienced, trustworthy one to deal with is few and far between. We want to be your one-stop shop to leave it better than we found it and have a relationship that goes past just improving your home or business. We run on three main principles, quality, because quality comes with a price. We want to do it right the first time and use the best materials. Integrity, because you want to know the true condition of your home or business. And I'm going to be honest and tell you exactly what I think. Grit, because I've swung the hammer. Bottom to top, I've done the labor. I know how the system works. We specialize in many different systems, including metal, clay tile, flat roofing, and good old shingles. You can find us at coltbuilds.com, our Facebook page, or our phone number is 817-789-7588. Colt Construction, dirty hands, clean money, your blue collar guy to call. Tonkin, the late great Gary Stewart, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you today. Thanks for dropping by. As we are visiting with our good friend Blake Barnett of DSC's Trailing the Hunter's Moon, the popular hunting TV show. I highly recommend you check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, we'll pick it back up with Blake here momentarily as we head to Australia's Coburg Peninsula to pursue Bantang. But first... This segment of the show brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. You know what you do? When you get off the water or out of the woods, you head over to Rudy's because they've got breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You get yourself a nice heaping plate of Texas Best Barbecue, and you wash it down with a Texas tradition like Lone Star Beer. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. We're moving right along here. Let's get back into it with Blake. Um, First of all, I'm very interested to find out how this hunt came about, Blake, because, you know, not everyone has even heard of Bantang, much less had the opportunity to hunt them in such a pristine and and really untouched wilderness like you experienced on Australia's Colberg Peninsula. Yeah, so this trip came about, uh, I did not have this trip on the books at all for uh, for the 2019 uh, production schedule. Yeah, don't ever get uh, married, ever. I mean, th- these, these uh, <laughs> spur-of-the-moment trips are a thing of the past. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I uh, like I said, yeah, I didn't have this trip scheduled. And uh, Jim, Jim Gibson is uh, actually from New Zealand. He owns New Zealand Safaris. He's an mm-hmm. outfitter and an exhibitor at DSC. Um, I had met Jim and did a television show uh, filming Larry with Jim about 10 years ago. It was the first time I had met Jim. And, uh, you know, we've just always been buds, you know. I mean, you know, you meet so many great people in this business and and through your travels, just like I'm sure you have as well. And uh, Jim is one of those characters. And uh, we have talked about doing things, but, uh, I, you know, I've been to New Zealand several times. I've hunted over there. Not that I don't, uh, 
have any interest in going back, but it just wasn't working out to do anything uh, in that part of the Southern Pacific, um, television-wise. And uh, I was sitting at home here in Texas uh, in between travel trips, and it was probably uh, late May. I had just gotten back from a spring black bear hunt in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim calls me internationally on the phone and just to check in and throws an idea at me and says, says he may have, uh, he's working on a deal in the Arnhem land in the Northern territory of Australia on some very special permits to hunt the Coburg peninsula, which is, uh, the peninsula in the most Northern part of the, of the continent of the entire continent mm-hmm. of Australia. And it's called the Coburg peninsula to hunt Bantang. And the Bantang is a wild cattle bovine species that, um, most people will say, Bantang, what is that? You know, yeah. uh, most dangerous game hunters will be familiar with, with the Bantang. And, uh, you know, when he, when he mentioned it to me, when Jim mentioned the hunt to me, he said, you know, there's no guarantees. I'm working with the national parks there. I'm working with the local Aboriginal people there. Um, but if I can get my hands on these permits, I think this would just be a really cool story because this area of Australia, this peninsula is just completely wild. There's almost very little civilization there. Um, and so I asked a few other questions and, and, uh, you know, told, needed to know some logistics. And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put this together quickly because if we can get this done, um, well, first off, he said, don't worry about bringing a firearm. He said, just use one of my firearms. Well, in the TV business and doing a TV show, we are, we are binded and committed and partnered with our sponsors as, as you're aware from the radio show. Oh yeah. And uh, so I kind of kind of told him my my situation there, and he said, "Okay, that's fine." He said, "We're we're we can get it done. We're a little tight. We need about six weeks, and that's about how much time we had to apply for firearm permits." So we immediately got the ball rolling, even before we even knew if we were get the permits. Just go ahead and get the firearms, you know, applications turned in and all of that. And uh, within probably a week to ten days, he notified me that uh, he had had the approval to uh, obtain a film permit in in this uh, on the Coburg Peninsula because the peninsula is a uh, is now a national park. The traditional landowner people reached a deal with government and uh, established what is called the Garag Gunak Barlu National Park, uh, which which uh, pretty much takes up almost the entire peninsula and man it, it just was an adventure that i said this is something different um i had been to australia before probably 10 years previous but i hunted more of the floodplains and, and, and more of the desert flat regions uh more to the east okay. of the northern territory so I, I had never been in a uh subtropic rainforest type ecosystem that the outback has but I, mean, I think when most people think of the outback of australia they think of more of that arid dry Sure. You know, red dirt, um, eucalyptus flats, mud, you know, floodplain kind of uh, territory. Just someone who's never been there, that's, that's what I think of, you know, absolutely. Yeah, and it, and it is very much like that. Um, you know, uh, most of that northern territory is, is like that, that the Kakadu National Park is a very well-known uh, tourist attraction for the northern territory, um, you know, for visitors. Uh, you know, it's very desolate, that whole part of the continent. I think that whole... I think I read that the entire Arnhem land or the Northern Territory, you know, which is like 37,000 square miles or something oh. ridiculous, the, the population 
human population is only like 16,000 people. Wow. So it, it's very desolate, you know, and it is very dry and, and, and arid. But, um, you know, out there, out there on the ocean is the Coburg Peninsula, and it is um, about 2,000 uh, square kilometers, a little over. I think it's like 2,500 square kilometers, to be honest mm. with you. So it's a massive long peninsula with a uh, with one road going in and one road going out, you know. <laughs> and um, so that's how the hunt came together. Was just uh, it was an idea of Jim Gibson's uh, to to uh, to pursue. And you know, the bantang is a species that's not in the spotlight that much. Um, you don't hear hear about the hunting of, of the bantang. And what's unique about the bantang to the peninsula is, I mean, it is a it is a a wild bovine species or a feral bovine species that was uh, brought over uh, by the British uh, in the mid to late 1840s and mm-hmm. uh, from the, from the, from Indonesia and from the islands of Indonesia. Bali, I read. And, yeah. And uh, so the British had, you know, kind of established the peninsula back in the same time, early to late 1830s. And uh, which they had discovered a lot of the Northern Territory and they brought Bantang. They, they even were helpful at introducing the water buffalo. And then then those species later got abandoned and they went feral and they went wild. But today... Uh, it seems like species, that's what happens with or has traditionally, historically happened to Australia is people just dump stuff there and forget about it. Like, correct. <laughs> I mean, don't yeah, I, you know more about it. You've been there twice, you said. Um it, it seems like they have more invasive species than they do native species. Yeah, um, you, you would think, but uh, yeah, the Coburg Peninsula, you know, pretty much uh, what exists there. I mean, the bird life is in, is incredible, but uh-huh. you know, the larger big game, you know, uh, the Bantang, the buffalo, the sandbar deer, you know, your, your wallabies. Like there, there's no kangaroos. Uh, your dingo does exist there. Mm-hmm. Um, a bunch of different reptiles, like I said, then the bird life was, was incredible, but, um, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing else that, that really obtains that, that ecosystem, that rainforest wild boar, I should take that back. There's, there's, there's a pretty high population of the wild boar, but, uh, but back on the Bantang species, it's the only area of Australia that, that the Bantang are truly pure strain, you know, and this is blood type that, you know, Bantang that the park has, uh, has, spent money, um, you know, protecting, conserving, doing all the research, trapping, doing the blood work, um, you know, to, uh, assure that these, these Bantang are pure. Cause some, some Bantang have been, that have ventured outside of the peninsula, uh, into, into cattle ranches have been trapped, caught and have been bred with, with other domesticated cattle. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but on the, on the, uh, Peninsula itself. I mean, I think uh, the reports that I received from the park ranger there at Gary Gunak Marlin National Park was ninety nine point nine seven nine 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 percent, you know, pure bantang. So, and that's what's really cool, uh, you know, Cable is you've been to Africa, you've probably hunted in or around some national parks, and and I have as well. And you know, hunting today is, oh gosh, you know, some areas you go to, everything has to be so PC. You know, you're there to hunt but you're not allowed to say you're there to yeah. hunt and and uh it, it's a frustrate it's frustrating to me but uh the one thing i will say about the garrick gunak barley national park you enter the park and like i said earlier there's one road in and one road out and there's a sign welcoming you to the park 
And the park is accessible by the public, but only only three months out of the year, same same three months that, that they hunt, which is June, July, and August. Hmm. Uh, right there at the entrance, it says, you know, welcome to the park and that this that there is safari hunting taking place. Awesome. Know? And uh, hunting is uh, to the park is is a valuable resource for the conservation efforts of protecting and conserving the species of the Bantang and the buffalo and the sandbar deer. And uh, they understand what putting a value on the wildlife within the park boundaries means to the wildlife and to the park. You know, this park is not all that that old either. I don't know if I told you. I think 2000 hmm. is when the government had reached a deal with the with the local traditional people of the of the peninsula. It's fascinating to me, Blake, that that they place a value on these invasive species. Like in Texas, you know, most Southerners think of feral hogs, and you know, we all have our own opinions on them, but we're not trying to protect yeah. them. And uh, in, in Texas, we're certainly not trying to protect other exotics. You know, like axis or all that or anything else you can shoot them at night you can shoot them you know whenever you want no right. close season however you want to i mean texas parks and wildlife doesn't give a crap about them actually they they right. gun down all dad when they you know they're competing with uh desert bighorn we're like okay well we'll just get a helicopter and we'll shoot all the all dad i mean and we still yep. can't get rid of yep. them but i mean that's the mentality here compared to where what you just experienced where they're actually like testing like we were 99.97 uh, percent pure bantang strain here so we're going to protect that species we place a value on this invasive species it's a totally different mentality well yeah exactly you know and you got to realize i mean that the local aboriginal people that you know which is which is mainly the the majority of the population of the entire northern territory you know are, are different uh aboriginal uh, tribes and people and i think it's i could be completely butchering the name but it's like the Awaija people um, hmm. that are native to the Coburg Peninsula, and they've been there for 40,000 plus years, you know. And um, the family that is still there today, uh, I got to meet. Uh, the oldest son was in camp with us every day. Uh, he called himself the prince, and huh. I don't know whether that's a whether that's a traditional term or I can't, I don't know. But I did get to meet um, his younger brothers and his and his mother and nieces and nephews, and they all live in one little community out on a out towards the end of the peninsula beachfront. Um, not the best, li I mean, typical living conditions that you would think or is expect in a third world country, you know, mm -hmm. um, just like you've seen and experienced in, in Africa, but, but they are taken care of very well by the government as well. You know what I mean? It, it's yeah. amazing to me to see how they, how they do live, but yet they they're driving an eighty thousand dollar you know total in cruiser diesel. Oh my god! <laughs> you know what I mean? That the government has gotten them. But okay, that I have but, not seen. You know, the places I've been, like the Amazon rainforest, the Dominican Republic, and, and Africa, to name a few, they are not taking care of them with an eighty thousand dollar vehicle. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, no, these they're provided <laughs> cars, you know, and and uh, but what's interesting to me is even those people know how valuable. Uh, you know, the resources that the peninsula can provide. I mean, even to um, sport fishermen, you know, this is this is an area where, you know, the big-time fly fishermen will spend big money to, to go on a destination trip to fish these big coral reefs and stuff out on the peninsula, on the points of these peninsulas, you know, mm -hmm. for giant trevally and other big, big-game species of, of uh, saltwater fish, you know. But back on the Bantang, um, you know they they are um, 
they they're prideful for you know what they have as well and work closely with the parks um to manage uh you know the quota and and manage the species that that are within the park boundaries you mm-hmm. know so you know for the bantang uh the park does an aerial survey every year by helicopter and their estimated population of bantang on the peninsula is close to 10,000 which is a big number mm-hmm. and uh their plan is to continue to issue permits for the Bantang hunting every year. And those permits being somewhere around 30, 35 permits annually. And, uh, you know, proceeds, money raised from selling those permits, you know, a percentage of that will go back to, uh, of course, to the local people. But majority, a big percentage of that goes back into funding the parks, maintaining right. the parks, you know, keeping the parks operational, providing providing income for the people that live in the park full time, which, I mean, we're talking about your, you're talking about being 400 miles from civilization. You know what I mean? The only people that are going to come see you are people that are going to fly in by a seaplane and, or the visitors to the park three months out of the year, which is very limited. Even, even on that part, I think they only allow like 20 vehicles into this massive park Hmm. at a time, you know? So the people that the park ranger, the people that live in the park, you know, full year, uh, you know, this hunting plays a, a very valuable part in, in uh, supplying income. So you're telling me that killing an animal actually keeps the lights on for this park. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that, right? And yeah. then here's what's, even, here's what's even more cool is that their long-term projection, their future projection is to trap some of these pure bantang and reintroduce them into the islands of Indonesia, back to the Bali area hmm. and stuff. And that, too, will be paid for. By hunters, yep. you know, yep. so it's really cool. Jim Jim Gibson is um, he's working with uh, Simon Kyle Little, who's an Australian outfitter. The, together, they're working, uh, you know, uh, with the park system to obtain these permits. They have already donated a uh, a, a wild bantang hunt to the DSC convention live auction oh, wow. for the 2020 Heritage Convention. So. Put that down on your books because if whoever buys that will be uh, able to just go on a just a true wild excursion of the outback, you know, and that's what it was. I mean, it was wild. It was the most one of the most wild ecosystems I had been in. Cable. I mean, it, it was jungle rainforest, which I wasn't expecting, which was uh-huh. cool. Um, you know, you, you, the bird life, the reptile life, uh, the sea life. I mean, our camp was right on the right on the ocean. I mean, to walk out of the camp and watch. Saltwater crocs, hammerhead sharks, huh. big manta rays swim the beaches. You know, um, hunting the you know to hunting in the jungle and uh, you know it, it was a it was a cool experience. Well, let me let me play the devil's advocate here and ask you. Yep. What is the appeal about hunting feral cattle? And I mean, just you know, I mean, obviously, I love hunting feral hogs, but this is essentially it was at one point in time a domesticated cattle species. Uh, I'm sure that over the last 150 years, they've uh, lost some of that tolerance for humanity. Oh yeah, uh, especially these these cattle. Um, they've never even seen a human. A big, uh-huh. you know, majority of them. Yeah, extremely wild. It's, it, it's a tough hunt. I will tell you this. You know, I, you know, I loved to buffalo hunt. I love to hunt Cape buffalo. I've always said that if uh, you know, I could t- I could only pick one species to hunt for the rest of my life. It would be the Cape buffalo, uh-huh. and hunting bantang. I put that right up there with a with a Cape Buffalo hunt. Um, just as, as leery as they are, 
as elusive as they are, they move very early and very late. Um, in fact, the local people had um, had burned some areas, and had they not burned those areas two weeks before I came, I couldn't even imagine how difficult the hunt would be, just as thick as the jungle is, and how elusive the bantang truly is. But um, the bantang is a they're uh, they're 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 known to be a little bit of an aggressive uh, species of, of cattle, you mm-hmm. know. So putting them at a, a liability or a risk to hunt, you know, a little bit of a, at that dangerous game uh, level is uh, makes it a little bit more intensifying, especially when you're that thick jungle and something can happen right in front of you at, at point blank range. Yeah. You know, we um, we had a couple of instances walking into the jungle, walking in. We had some navigation, little uh, we had some GPS points, coordinates, I guess you call it, um, of some freshwater springs that we would walk into, you know, um, after visiting burns. And if we couldn't find Bantang, we would go to where they would hopefully be watering. That required walking through super thick jungle. And uh, we bumped some Bantang numerous times. And they let out a, uh, a very interesting snort. And uh, you don't know which way they're going. You know what I mean? Are they coming to you? Are they going away? I mean, you just hear, you hear bush crashing. And, uh, so, I mean, it'll, it'll make your hair stand up on your arms. And I like, I like to hunt spot and stalk and I like to hunt on the ground. And, um, and you like dangerous game, as you alluded to Cape Buffalo is your, your favorite thing to hunt. So that, that... Uh, yeah, I mean, I've killed the big five and I like the dangerous game hunt, you yeah. know? So, I mean, I put it right there with, with any other dangerous game hunt. It's a, it's a challenge, you yeah. know, what's really cool about the Bantang hunt that I did was, you know, I killed a very old Bantang. I mean, 14, 15 years old, pretty much, pretty much a bull that had lived the full extent of his life. I think a lot of credit that uh, credit to that goes to being able to hunt the park. You know, the bull I shot was kicked out of the herd by himself. Killed him very early, early in the morning on a burn. You you killed him in a burn, you said? I did kill him in a burn. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's early in the morning. It doesn't matter what continent or what part of the world you're hunting. Like, cause I just got back from Montana and what was I doing? Hunting elk in a burn, you know, where are you? Yeah. It's yeah. amazing how wildlife will go there, you know, fresh growth, you yep. know? Um, and, uh, this is on a burn that just had, yeah, the shoots were just coming up. They were only maybe a couple inches tall and, uh, spotted this bull, you know, actually leaving the burn, we were a little bit late getting to it. And, uh, you know, just a bull that's well past his prime, but just honorable. I mean, to think that this bull lived on this peninsula, battling cyclones, everything else in its lifetime, you could see it had it, it had his butt kicked by a couple of younger bulls as well, probably herd bulls. Um, and that's the way I like to hunt Cape Buffalo as well. It's like, that's how I like to hunt pretty much everything. It's not always about the size, though I've been fortunate to to take some incredible, you know, animals. But I think that if you've defeated the old guys, you've really done something as a hunter. You know, yeah. there's a reason that those that those older animals live to be as old as they get. And so when you beat them at their game, it's uh, I think that's a, an accomplishment but and a challenge at the same, same well, time. And you go back historically, now now this, there's this negative connotation associated with the term trophy hunter. But historically, yeah. you know, in, in Teddy Roosevelt's day, Trophy hunter meant just what you described. You took the oldest mature male, and uh, and that's yeah. what, and and to me that's why people they say, "Cable, are you a trophy hunter?" And I'm like, "Well, yes, but there's a lot of underlying text there, and and the trophy is number one in the experience." But but absolutely, 
I, I hunt for the meat, and, I, and I'm not ashamed to say I hunt for the horns. I, I, I love having, looking in my studio right now, just looking at all these memories. Um, to me, Absolutely. That's, that's what reminds me of that moment in time, and I remember who I was with and where we were and what the weather was like and, and the moments leading up to uh, ultimately taking that animal. Um, so, yeah, I'm a trophy hunter. I'm not ashamed to say it, and, and I think it's, it, it is a shame that our society basically – blacklist us because uh yeah we like to take old mature animals which is conservation yeah Yeah, i mean you nailed it on the head i mean i mean trophy has become this negative word in our industry and i hate it as much as you do uh there's so much there's a definition there's there's many definitions for the word trophy Mm -hmm. you know in my opinion and uh you know i think that today's world social media and everything is is so many people are naive and they read one thing and they believe it, you know? And so it's, it's, uh, the word trophy in the hunting, uh, heritage, you know, cause it is a heritage. We are, we as hunters, you know, it's, it's, it's a lifestyle, it's a heritage. And that trophy means so many different things to all of us, mm-hmm. you know? And for me, I'm just like you. I mean, I, I've killed some phenomenal trophies in terms of antler size or horn size or, or whatever, or weight size, you know, um, but trophy two is, uh, I mean, the experience, I mean, one thing I can, that I brought back from hunting the Coburg Peninsula was I still look at photos and go back and look at photos, you know, uh, almost every day. I mean, I'm working on an article right now for the DSC convention issue mm-hmm. magazine on, on this particular trip. And the biggest trophy, I mean, yes, I'm bringing both my Bantang and I, and I was successful at taking a, a Asiatic water buffalo on the hunt as well. Oh, wow. So I'm bringing both of those back to the States and, and double nickel taxidermy in New Braunfels, Texas will preserve those memories for me to hang on my walls and to tell those stories to friends and whoever I come into you know, pass with, but that trophy was to stand on some of the most wildest beaches where I know no man's ever stood. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, just to soak it all up. I mean, you know, um, I made a social media post right when I, right when I got out of the bush and was back in civilization in the hotel in Darwin and just, you know, kind of reflected back on when I was younger, you know, um, how I was picked up on, you know, as, as a young child by childhood friends and even adults that, man, you, you know, all you like to do is hunt and fish. You like to do anything else, you know, <laughs> you play sports, you this and that. And, you know, not that they, they, it wasn't that they were bullying me or any of that, you know what I mean? But yeah. I mean, as I got a little older in life, I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, your parents, your family, everybody wants the best for you and tries to point you in the direction of where they think you should go. And, you know, and, and I knew that I followed a passion and a dream and stood out there on that peninsula, was casting from the bank, you know, that giant trevally, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I just thought to myself, you know, the only thing close to me is the Indonesian island straight across this ocean, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, or some pirates or something. And I was just like, that, that right there is, is the trophy with that whole experience of all of it. I mean, we had such a great time in camp. And, and uh, uh, Benjamin Manchester was his assistant. He was also a Kiwi from New Zealand. Uh, Solomon Cooper was the was the oldest son of the of the local traditional people there. Um, you know, meeting his family. I mean, it was just yeah, I could go on and on. It was the coolest experience in yeah. the world, man. It 
that's a trophy to me. Um, I had actually, interestingly, I had my, my dad on the show last week. It was like an origin show. It was like, how did I get to where I am today? And, uh, we, we got to, we just came back from Canada on this, uh, Boundary Waters trip in Ontario and we canoed up this lake that like, it was like seven miles long. It was called Narrow Lake. Why is this narrow? It was just seven miles of just basically like a river. Uh-huh. And the, and there's no motorized anything up there. I mean, you're 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 dumped in the boundary waters, and you have a takeout, uh, a drop point, and a, and a takeout point, and I mean, you're just exploring. And it's like the most pristine wilderness. And anyway, we go to this one lake on this map, and and the outfitter be like, yeah, we heard there's big smallmouth at Owl Lake. We go there, spend all day canoeing there, and try to go through a portage that doesn't look like that portage had been used in I don't know a decade maybe. Uh, you kind of see where it had been at one point in time. And I asked my dad, I was like, when do you think the last time a human being was here? He's like, I, yeah. where we're standing, I don't know if a human's ever been here. And that, uh, just like that moment you experienced, it's like freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you got to live it, you know what I yeah. mean? Uh, That's why we do it. We're adventurers at heart, you know? That is why we do it, you know? Yeah. I mean, forget the big city life. I can't stand the big cities, you know? And I listen to... I listen to the people that judge, you know, it goes back to, to that word trophy and how people have judged that world, that word trophy, you know, um, when they, when they judge us hunters, um, they're so naive. They just, they're ignorant to, to the lifestyle, to the heritage, to traveling, to adventure so much more. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's just a personal formed opinion that they've taken off of something that they've read either on the internet or on social media. What is their trophy, know? Blake, at the end of the day? Is it like a tofu salad after they get out of their cubicle? They, yeah. they get a I don't tofu know. Salad? He's I like, think oh. to them it's just to be negative. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, it's, negative, it's negative jealousy over them maybe not being happy with where they're at in life or what they do for a career or yeah. mistakes that they made and wish they would have done. And that's, that's what I, that's what I try to tell myself and, and uh, I move on because I know that I get to wake up every day and, um, you know, I get to talk about hunting and fishing with my friends and or blog about it on social media or look at it in a studio, editing editing studio, you know, and or plan the next adventure on where I'm going to go experience something really cool that I wish the rest of the world would could experience with me, you know, and that's, and that, that right there is, is my passion. I mean, as much as I love to hunt is, uh, when people say, well, why do you do this? It's, it's, uh, man, if I can just, if I could take the whole world hunting, I, I could, but that's impossible. But that's what you're doing with but, your TV show. I mean, that's the, yeah, if I could just take people on the, it's not about me, but if Larry and I can take the, the, the viewer on the adventure with us, and that's yeah. truly how we try to film our show is over the shoulder, show it how it happened and and uh and just you know with a little bit of education behind it and but uh just just show people a lifestyle and an adventure in a world that exists you know out there mm-hmm. which is why we're talking about it today i mean who i heard of bantang knew they were uh in australia but essentially that's all i knew about them you know and i was like oh, yeah i've been following along on your uh, your social media posts, I'm like, this is a really cool trip and seems like an untouched region of, of Australia. And we certainly, I, I, you know, I was like, I want to hear about this. I think our listeners would find it interesting as well. Let me ask you this. So did you take the same uh, caliber that you would normally hunt Cape Buffalo with? I do. I am a huge fan of the 375 Ruger ever since Ruger came out with the caliber. Um, 
you know, before before the that caliber was invented, I I shot the three seven five H and H a lot, mm-hmm. and I've shot four sixteens as well. But um, I did. I took a Ruger three seven five Ruger, but I took it in a number one, a single shot. Mm-hmm. So I, this was the first dangerous game hunt that I've ever done with uh, with a single shot. But I shoot a lot of single shots. Um, I'm a big Ruger number one fan. Mm-hmm. I collect Ruger number ones. Um, I, I have this mission to try to shoot everything you know, and, and hunt everything for the rest of my career with a, with a Ruger number one. Um, it's, it's a, it's a big, big mission and a big accomplishment to fill you know, but I'm going to try my best at it. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was told, man, are you sure you want to take a number one on dangerous game hunt? You know, but you know, when you, when you do things, uh, repetitiously, which, you know, I shoot a number one a lot, I'm, I'm, I'm almost as fast at reloading that single shot as I am working a bolt action rifle, you uh-huh. know? But I uh, I did I took three seven five Ruger and, and shooting Hornady's uh, DGX ammo their dangerous game ammo which yeah. is a three hundred grain bonded bullet and man I have I have filled a lot of Cape Buffalo with that bullet and it it uh, it just blows them up on the inside I mean not to be graphic but it 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 does a great job and I was it did a great job on on this hunt I mean the Bantang was a one shot kill um, was almost taken back in shock that he just dropped, you know, and uh-huh. he did. I shot him right through, through the shoulders at about, well, it, it didn't pass through, but it's uh, right at about 90 yards, which is, which is getting a little far on a dangerous game hunt, you know, but, um, he gave me a great broadside shot and, and he went down and even the Buffalo that I shot towards the end of my hunt was a, was a high shoulder shot and, and, uh, it broke both his shoulders and knocked him on his front end. And I put, I put two more insurance shots you yeah. know, in him, but he didn't, he didn't go 10 yards, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm very, uh, very confident in that caliber and in that round. For, See, this is great for to hear for me personally, because, uh, Mossberg is a long time sponsor of the show and their only dangerous game caliber is a 375 Ruger. So, man, I'm uh, going to tell you, it's a wildcat cartridge, you know, for the 375, there's, there's more energy and more velocity behind that bullet than in the 375 H&H, which is another great round. You yeah. know, nothing against it. It's the traditional 375. But that 375 Ruger, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've hunted elephants with it. I've hunted uh, hippo with it. I've, I mean, I've, I've shot all the big dangerous game uh, with that round. Um, I'm leaving on a coastal peninsula brown bear hunt here uh October 5th. I bet you're not taking the single shot on that one. I want to really bad. (laughs) The only reason I'm not is, uh, I just, I I bought this beautiful Ruger number one, um, 375 Ruger from Lee Newton. Who's a, who's a big Ruger collector here Uh in Texas. And, uh, I, I, you know, the peninsula can just be brutal this time of year with rain and, you know, fronts coming off the Bering sea and, uh, my guns are tools they are, but when they're just beautiful, I just can't let them go have that kind of harsh treatment. Right. I don't mind carrying them around the bush or any of that, but so I, I probably am not, I'll probably be taking a, uh, Ruger M77 stainless in a bolt action, you yeah. know, uh, but in the same caliber in a 375 Ruger and again, shooting, uh, Hornady ammo. And I'm a big Trijicon guy made in America, support the military, you know, um, I used a one to six in, in Australia, which is their dangerous game version. It's one to six by twenty four. 
Well, and, you know, and going back to you. that uh, that that three seven five Ruger, which was I was actually happy you brought it up because I, I am doing my first K Buffalo hunt uh, this summer, coming summer. Nice. So, and uh, I was like, well, um, asked Carl what he thought I should get, and he's like, well, you should look at three seven five H and H, which I've been on a Cape Buffalo hunt, like um, where I was not the hunter, I tagged along with my buddy, and uh, he did take one with a three seventy five H and H. I think it ran like 50 yards and fell over dead. So, uh, yeah. you know, I've seen that in, in action. And, um, but like I said, Mossberg makes that 375 Ruger. So I'm glad that you're a big fan of it. And, uh, I'll be using that same Huge Hornady, fan. same Hornady, uh, combination as you as well. So, yeah, yeah it's, it, it, it's a caliber that, you know, honestly, if you use that one caliber and hunt everything in the world with it, but, uh, uh that 375 is, is, just as deadly and uh i think even so more so deadly than some of the really bigger calibers only on the on the event that most people are intimidated by recoil you know and when you're intimidated by recoil it doesn't do you any good to shoot you know any of the 400s yeah. you know or 500s and uh the 375 ruger recoil is manageable um without a ported barrel you know and uh so i think that you know, when you, when you handle your firearm more accurately, because, you know, you can manage its recoil, you're going to be a better shot. And for, for hunting dangerous game, that's, that's important for not only being successful, uh, for your own hunt, but for, uh, liability on your pH side and, you know, things and, and everything else. I think it, uh, I think it says a lot to be, uh, to be able to swallow your pride and say, Hey, I don't need to shoot a 458 lot or a 416 Ruger. Now that there's anything wrong with those calibers, this 375 Ruger more than will get the job done. Mm-hmm. And it's pleasant. It's, you know, it's pleasant to shoot. It's not, it's not brutal. Well, you know, I think for me personally, when I've, you know, let's just say 300 wind mag, um, for example. Yeah. I mean, that thing kicks a little bit, right? Okay. You're yep. shooting at the gun range, like 20 shots. Ah, my shoulder kind of, I, I feel that. I never, yeah. in the moment when the adrenaline's flowing, ever feel like, "Wow, I felt that recoil." It just, just when you're in the exactly. moment, it, for me, it doesn't ever happen. Um, That's right. I'm, yeah. I'm the same way. Yeah. I'm the same way. And I practice a lot. I mean, you know, I, that, I shoot all the time, and um, I'm going to go to the range here this week to to practice for this, you know, brown bear hunt that I have coming up. So, I mean, just repetitions that comes from my old horse training days you know what i mean you went out and did the same thing over and over again and you got better every time Mm -hmm. and uh you know for so for shooting it's the same way for me i mean i i'm a big advocate that we owe it to the you know animal to kill it with with one shot you know to do everything we can to put it down as quickly and as fast as possible um as a respect as a hunter absolutely that we're chasing and so with that comes you know comes practice especially shooting bigger guns it's just being familiar being prepared being ready and and knowing what to expect yeah yeah no doubt about that um we are going to take a quick break here when we come back i'll get blake's take on what he thinks is the biggest threat facing us as a hunting community and uh our way of life now that segment of the show by the way brought to you by first light and their arrow wool technology i usually tell you all about one piece today i'm just telling you about their wool because it honestly didn't matter what piece I wore on my elk hunt. It, it was always cold in the morning, and then it would warm up in the middle of the day, and then it was cold again in the evening. And you're hiking around with a 35-pound pack on your back, and you sweat. It doesn't matter if you're wearing one layer, two layers, or three. It, it, your body sweats. Here's the beauty of wool. And First Light 
has it down to a science. It dries quickly and it keeps you warm when it's cool and cool when it's warm. It's uh, it's pretty amazing, right? So no matter what piece or laying system you want to go with, you need to head over to firstlight.com and uh, get your kit ready for this hunting season. First light, go further, stay longer. We'll be right back with more from Blake Barnett on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Place for beer and bars. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at bobcatadvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? Cable here for Three Crow Outfitters and their new North Texas Duck Club, which consists of over 3,000 acres and 40 water bodies throughout Ellis and Navarro counties. Three Crow does the planting, provides metal blinds, decoys, and posts a weekly scouting report. All you and your buddies do is reserve the property you want and show up to hunt. This opportunity is limited to 10 four-person memberships, so for the waterfowling experience of your lifetime, go to threecurl.com or call 214-641-8097 today. Hey, this is Evan Felker with the Turnpike Troubadours, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. You've seen your share of war, living for your Uncle Sam, Sam don't need you anymore. That's our very own Evan Felker and the Turnpike Troubadours bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show. Cable Smith here with you today. And wherever Evan is, I hope he's getting the help he needs. I mean, it's been very well publicized. Uh, the band's, you know, been canceling shows left and right for a couple of years now. And they finally called it quits. That's the latest in the news, which is a damn shame because they're about the best act going on the uh, Americana and Texas country scene. Uh, it, one of my favorites, no doubt, hands down. Um, so hopefully he gets everything back on track and who knows, maybe someday we'll have him on again to play some tunes and talk about his passion for raising bird dogs and, and hunting quail, a fascinating guy. Uh, anyway, we are visiting with Blake Barnett here on the Lone Star Outdoors show powered by Dallas Safari Club today. I also want to thank Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris and we're going to get back into it with Blake here momentarily, but first this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by Vortex Optics and their Fury range-finding binocular. Um, if you're a minimalist or if you just want to cut down on the number of pieces of equipment that you have to take into the field every day, well, you no longer need to take a bino and a rangefinder. It's just one piece. It's combined. It's the Fury range-finding binocular, and you can find it at vortexoptics.com. Moving right along here, let's pick it back up with our buddy Blake Barnett. And, you know, Blake, um, as a father of three young kids, at night 
a lot of times I, I tuck my son in, he falls asleep, and then I, I just I lay there and I, I fear for the future of our sport and his future as a sportsman going forward because we absolutely are living in the most trying of times as outdoor enthusiasts. It seems like the world is against us. At least that's how it feels on social media. And even though that's not true statistically, uh, that's the way that people want to make it out to be. And so I fear that it's just going to get to the point where it's not worth it for the younger generation. They don't want to deal with all of this hate and these, the vile nature of the anti-hunting community. So that's my biggest fear um, for the future of our sport. What what is yours? What 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 keeps you up at night as uh, as you ponder and reflect on where we're going moving forward? Yeah, man, it's scary, Cable. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I wake up, up, think about it every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like you, I'm, I, this is how I make a living. Um, I think what's scariest the most is um, how uneducated society is and and it's more than just society it's also our own base of hunters you know what i'm saying um i run into people weekly through whether it's through chatting or through social media or whether it's visiting a gun store or a taxidermy studio or running into other hunters especially during this time of year you know you know, uh, hunting season, mm-hmm. everybody going different places at airports and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm taken back and it's made me very aware of how even uneducated, um, our own group of people are meaning other hunters on, on the attacks and on what's ahead. You know what I mean? When I look at, um, when I look at some things that people will put on social media, um, because they think it's cool to share it and that's cool. It's their own personal opinion. And, um, and I may think it's cool too, but there are some things that, um, are being, being used 100% against us, you know, um, from that social media platform that are taken and stolen and manipulated and used by other anti-groups, you know, um, truth and reality is, is, you know, there, we have over 320 million people living right here in the United States alone, you know, and the number of people that are hunters out of that group is about 12 million or maybe just a tad less. Now it wasn't four or five years ago that we had just under 20 million, like around 18 million, you know, so we've seen a steadily decrease and decline in the number of hunting licenses being sold annually across the United States. And of course, Texas produces and sells majority, you know, has the highest number of, of license sales in yep. the state. But, you know, we're just one state. And, um, you know, when you take that 11 and almost 12 million hunters, you know, there's 200 plus million people in the United States that are firearm owners. And you would think that, oh, if you own a firearm, they understand hunting. Well, you'd be surprised at the number that doesn't like hunting. They're, they're pro-gun. You know yeah. what I mean? They're, they're, they're pro-gun. They like to shoot. They like to target shoot. I used to say those people um, were I just, you know, ignorantly be like, oh, they're probably on our side. They're probably cool with hunting. And like you said, yeah, that's and, um, not and, true. <laughs> yeah. The majority of them sit on the fence. It's not that they're against, but there are some that aren't, aren't for hunting, you know. And so 
you know, in the anti-hunting world, makes up for about the same amount of number of people that buy hunting licenses. Mm-hmm. But with all that said, you know, um, it's so important now that we we do a better job at. Uh, I don't want to say changing the narrative because some people are trying to do that, but I think it is important that we are just more aware of what's really going on and we, we make better decisions about what we put, what we put out there. Um, the, the truth is, you know, the anti-hunting organizations uh, and those that support it are, like I said, made up to about the same amount of number of people that buy hunting licenses. The difference is they have a lot more money that they raise mm. than we do as groups, you know. Um, we raise money it, for to support our passion, and con- you know, conservation and hunting. All of those anti-hunting and, groups and support, are just hunter rights. Yeah. Hunter rights. yeah, yeah, yeah. But all they are is just lobbyist groups raising money to raise money to fund, you know, that ever spinning wheel, and and they never put wow. any of it towards a, uh, a, a. They don't put a wooden nickel towards conservation or these animals. They say yeah. that they love or trying to protect. Um, and the, and going back to the uneducation piece, like the irony is that they're through destroying hunting, they're they're killing the animals that they say they love, and it's just, I mean, they can't see the forest for the trees. Emotion. They're doing it by using emotion. That's yeah. the scary part. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, raising the money, they have more money than us um, when it comes to fighting and lobbying, um, and that's crucial and that's important, and that's what we as all hunters need to recognize, and that's what we need to do a better job at. You know, being being members to the right, you know, hunter rights groups um, to to support fighting that issue and fighting back. But um, the sad, the scary part is, you know, the anti the anti agenda, the anti hunters are winning with emotion. You know, they are they are convincing um, government and, and everyone else with with emotion and not with with science based facts. Um, I know you probably saw some some recent information um, from the CITES convention oh, yeah. that that happened over in Geneva, you know, and um, speaking, you know, with DSC, which they're a sponsor of yours and they're a sponsor of of, of mine. Um, I spoke with their executive director who attended the meetings, and very frustrating the outcome of the meetings. Of basically, CITES basically took the entire sustainable use conservation method and kicked it to the curb. You know, yeah. um, 100%, 100% based on emotion, you know, and um, what, what, where I'm going with that is a humongous, a huge population. I wouldn't know what the percentage is, so I don't want to quote it, but I would say definitely more than half um, are even unaware of what critical role that plays. I'm talking about hunters that don't understand what, what role that plays. You know, yeah. Africa has become a very popular destination, especially South Africa for uh for young hunters uh, and or hunters who are just getting into hunting abroad um it's a destination that's uh, financially become very affordable you know um for for people to go over there hence why i'm going but, back for the fifth year in a row <laughs> yeah but i'm i'm telling you you know what you know that's uh and that's all a pop that's all a that's all a positive thing yeah but majority of these people don't understand what's really going on that you know um, it's that that's going to become a destination where it's going to become harder for us guys, us Americans, to go over there and hunt to be able to bring back and import import our trophies. And if those of us that can't import our trophies, they're they're not going to go. 
you know, in the future. I've got a trophy so, over there right now. I can't get back, Blake. Uh, and I've talked to, like you said, uh, Corey Mason. He was on recently, and he always, uh-huh. you know, we always somehow the conversation always goes to my damn Bontebuck that. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. It is a great conservation success story from hunters who saved the species from the brink of extinction. Um, yeah. Because this, I think, the Bontebuck lived in such close proximity to Cape Town that it was yep. basically meat hunted to the point of extinction. Uh, and a bunch yep. of of ranchers and hunters basically said, "Hey, we got to save the species." And so back in the fifties, they did that, and and now it's recovered. And through stupid sighties uh, loopholes, and and going back to what you said about making it a pain in the ass for hunters to go over there, well, I'm experiencing, I'm living that. I've got it. Something I shot yep. there two years ago, I can't get it back, and it's not even an endangered or it's it's absurd. It's ridiculous, you know. And again, so. So yeah, the future is is uh, is untelling. I think you know. Um, I I my personal opinion is international hunting is is going to be under attack. Um, I think that the 2020 election is is important. Uh, coming up, you know, yeah. we need to we need the Republican Party to to uh, to maintain uh, you know D.C. and and uh, we don't want to lose that to uh, to the Democrats. I think that's an, that's an, that's going to be a big factor. Um, and I think it's important that we encourage all hunters to really get involved with the conservation group, you know, DSC, one of the best ones in the world, in my opinion, but there's also others for, for other people that, that, uh, they can support and get behind to support this, you know, their passion of hunting or protecting their rights to, to, you know, have, have hunting be around for their next generation, for their young kids. You know, mm-hmm. I know so many people that love to hunt and, um, but they're not members of any group and I ask them why. And, um, you know, they don't really give an answer, you know, but, um, and I don't, I don't, I don't accuse them for not being members, but I try to tell them why it's important to be a member right now, you yeah. know, yeah. and, uh, DSC, DSC stands on the front lines and really puts, you know, their money where their mouth goes and, 100%. and, uh, yeah. has for, has for a long time. I've been involved with them for over 20 years now. And, and, uh, I, you know, I'm a life member and, and, and we'll, just always support that group because they support my passion. And and, uh, and I'll say this: in the last three or four years, they they've really, um, I, I would say, gone a different direction with like a, a fresh perspective of look, we've, we're getting killed here. The the anti the anti hunting crowd, the the social media stuff is just beating the crap out of us as a community. And DSC was like, we're not going to stand for that anymore. And they've taken a more yeah. proactive. Dance and their message they put out there, and 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 telling the facts and and making videos that that actually back up what we do with science. Um, so I, I totally yeah. applaud them for that because some it was like nobody was doing it, you know, it was just individuals. But we needed yeah. an organization to come out and, and say enough's enough. We're going to actually uh, come out and and be more aggressive and take the game to the other side because Lord knows they're doing it to us. Hey, and I and I think you're exactly right. And I think that that we can change the narrative of the of the people, especially who are not anti hunters, but who just don't hunt and who don't uh, know much about it or understand much about it, but are willing. I mean, and I say that because you know, with all my travels, I you know, especially in the airports and going through customs, you know, traveling with a firearm, you, get, you know, you always get deterred. And you have to go, you know, through other processes, and and I meet people constantly, and I always get asked the question about my firearm case. Is that a, everybody says, is that a firearm or is that a, some people will say, is that a keyboard? You know, but most people say, is that a firearm? And, and I'll be, you know, I'll you look like a musician. You look like a keyboard. Yeah. Yeah, a cowboy like hat. A, like a yeah, exactly. 
And uh, I said, uh, you know, I'll always answer yes and follow their lead. And, and um, they said, they'll say, are you a hunter? And, I, and I'll say yes. And I've never had anybody personally attack me for any of that. I've had, I've had people ask me legitimate, you know, questions um, for their lack of knowing, but have always been respectful, you know. And it happened to me on this Australia trip that you and I discussed. I mean, I was in um, I was in the DFW airport clearing uh, customs, and there were two young ladies in front of me. That one was wanted coming in from Mexico from the beach, and the other one somewhere else. And both of them asked me straight up, you know. And um, you know, I thought, oh, where's this going to go? And and uh, I said, yes, it's a firearm. One of the young ladies says, are you a hunter? And I said, I am. I said, where have you been hunting? And I said, Australia. When I said Australia, they were blown away. They were like, "Really? Hmm. You hunt in Australia? What did you hunt?" And I told them, you know. And both of them said, "You know, I've never hunted." But and they asked me, "What did I do with the meat? What did I do with my trophies? What did I, you know?" And I told them, you know. And uh, they were very open-minded to it, you know. And I think I think dialogue is important. And I think you know, um, I think I think we can use emotion to fight emotion. I think we can educate people by talking about it more. And I think we just need to do that. We, you know, there's a big, big majority of hunters that just want to put their fighting, fighting gloves on and just want to say, screw you. I don't owe you an explanation. Leave me alone. And, and there is some truth to that. You know what I mean? But, mm-hmm. um, but also answering questions properly and, you know, respecting, respecting the heritage. And, and uh, I think it's ignorant, to be honest with you. When, and, and, and I'll take it a step further and say Texas as a state, we're very proud and, and almost to a fault sometimes. Because I'll sure. say, like, I post, um, posted this thing about California two weeks ago became the first state to make it uh, illegal to trap for yeah, recreation all. or uh, commercial. So no trapping statewide whatsoever. I post that, and people are like, well, that ain't ever going to happen in Texas. And I'm like, that's ignorant right there. Uh, you, you have to be aware of these things to make sure that they don't happen in your state. And just to pretend like... What happens in California? Everything starts in California, and it trickles into the, and and poisons the rest of the country. You know, you are so spot on, and I'll use another example. I got into a little bit of a debate with a Texas-based outfitter, and I won't mention any names. And he probably—I mean, in fact, I'm pretty sure they follow your radio show, so they'll probably hear me say this. But we got into a little bit of a controversial, you know, conversation over a post that he had made. Uh, over in Africa of a uh, charging um, blue wildebeest that was wounded, Mm -hmm. you know, very gory, bloody footage, you know, um, and, uh, you know, that's the last kind of footage that the big operators over in Africa want to want to see used for display of promoting their hunting business. But you're right. I think that uh, a lot of a lot of us hunters are are ignorant. We don't think about the other damages that it could, it could create, you know, and I try to point those out and, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a positive educational light, he, he was very offensive and <laughs> blocked me, which was no hurt. And it didn't hurt my feelings at all, but I was like, Hey man, you know, you want to promote African travel. You want to promote African safari hunting. You're a Texas based operator. Um, and you're not doing anything to help the African operator you're representing and or your own services, you know, through social media, you know, I get it, you get it, but social media, you know, what we put out there can be, uh, we got to be careful. It could be damaging, 
I mean, you you and I have had that same conversation. Not not we weren't like hostile towards each other, but I posted a. Sure. I think it was a. It was actually a picture of a guy shooting a lion that was asleep. Yeah. And yeah, w- I would do that. I'm not filming a TV show like you are, and I don't. Here's the deal. They didn't just walk up on a lion and shoot it. They tracked the damn thing for days and days, and yeah. it was, I'm sure it was a hell hellacious hunt. And then when he, it's like, uh, to me, I was like, okay, well, this is just a. Uh, um, you know, a freebie. Like the the hunting god smiled on this dude. He's like, the lion's asleep. Yeah. Well, of course, I would rather take that shot. It's safer. It's it was an ethical shot. The lion uh, died, but there's the the footage of him shooting a lion, and, and then I guess the issue is that probably doesn't that that someone on the fence is like that's ignorant. Going back to ignorance, they don't realize everything that went into that. They just see a guy shooting a sleeping lion, and that's and you exactly said, hey man. Right. You know, we had a conversation about it. You're like, I don't know that that's the message we want to put out there. I thought about it. Yeah. I was like, you know what? You're probably right. Uh, so yeah. took it down. And and that's, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that this guy didn't have that kind of a conversation with you and that he got all hostile about it. But we have to be able yeah, to have those know, conversations. Um, yeah, conversation is, is important in, in telling why. You know what I mean? I mean, it's one thing to use, I think, footage. Uh, of a certain situation, if it if it's backed and supported about how everything went down, yeah. you know. But in today's world, in social media, and how fast paced the whole world looks at, people just look at a photo or a short video clip, you know. And if we don't if we don't put if we don't put the why behind it, you know, um, the message the me- the message gets misconstrued. And um, I mean, I'm pr- proof for that is I mean, I've hunted elephants successfully, and I've posted posted you know stories about hunting elephants and the very first one i did i was proud and and i was in a rush to get things out there and it was more just photographic you know and i got beat up bad you know and since that since that experience i've i've hunted elephants a few more times and i've filmed them i've filmed those hunts and i've documented you know the start to finish process and um in the social media stories and blogs that I did on that, I told the whole story and I told why I did this, you know, and I showed why I did this. Mm-hmm. And when I took that approach, I, the, the fighting, the attacks, you know, I didn't have, I had very few minimal, you know, and mm-hmm. even when we aired them on, you know, television, I got very few hate mails, you know? So, I think it's just important that, you know, our message is clear and um, we're not so in your face, you know, because um, I just don't think we're going to win that discussion being in your face with these people, even though it's aggravating. I wouldn't say and in your you, face. Is, that's not the word I would use. I would use antagonistic. Like, Yeah, antagonistic. That would yeah. be a better word. Because I'm not going to – I mean, um, you and nor I are going to stop taking grip and grins. I mean, I'm proud no, of that. Heck I'm, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. but there are, like, like you said, and, and people would say that a grip and grins in your face. Well, no, it, to me, if you wipe the blood off and you make it a respectful pose with the animal and you're showing respect to it, that's, that's not in your face. Um, that's but, not in your face. Yeah. And a little bit of what you just, a little bit of what you just experienced, yeah. you know, something that's, that's truthful and honorable to both the experience and to the animal is, is, is simple and it's enough, you yeah. know? And, uh, but I think these challenges are going to always be here with just the way, digital and technology is what it is. I think, I think you do a fantastic job with your radio show and, and with your social media cable on, you know, uh, putting educational pieces out there informing people about current events to, 
things that are happening to the challenges that we face. And I think that, um, I think the industry needs more of that from guys like you. Um, and, and I think that, uh, guys like you and I are, are sometimes we're looked upon as, uh, with a little bit of jealousy if we get to do what we love to do and, and do it in the outdoors. But more importantly, the majority of the people see us as people to, to help them stay educated and aware of what's going on and what's, what's coming up. And I think yeah. that, uh, you know, the best thing that we as hunters can do is, is all of us unite, you know, I mean, bow hunters, muzzleload hunters, rifle hunters, handgun hunters, high fence hunter, low fence hunters, you know, it don't matter. Go buy a hunting license, take a person hunting, make it fun, make it educational, you know, but make it fun and, uh, you know, support, support the heritage and, and, and promote and, and grow the heritage. Absolutely, brother. Well, hey, if you want to tell folks where they can find uh, DSC's Trailing the Hunter's Moon so that they can, you said 26 episodes a year, so you guys are pumping them out. Uh, where can they follow along? Yeah, we are We are currently airing on the Pursuit Channel, and uh, so we air on Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays with an occasional fourth bonus airing that they've been giving us on Wednesdays. And then uh, digitally, you can find us on Roku. You can also find us on Pursuit Up uh tv.com uh which is the pursuit channel's digital uh mm-hmm. channel and it's it's a free subscription there's no monthly fees to view any of our content there and you can also catch us at the trail and the hunters moon youtube channel as well and your and your social stuff and social media yeah i'm not you know i'm not as active on it as as you are but uh facebook trail and the hunters moon or blake barnett or instagram at blake w barnett rock on uh, you can find us find us there as well, but uh, yeah, yeah, man, we're gonna keep after it. We're gonna keep supporting the the hunting heritage sport and and uh, fight the good fight. And one of these days, you and I need to get in the field and go do some hunting. Well, I was just thinking that. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, hey, Blake, uh, thanks so much for your time today. Good luck on that brown bear hunt. Hey, man, have fun in Africa. We'll do it. We'll talk soon. All right, buddy. See ya. And so there he goes, our good friend Blake Barnett of DSC's Trailing the Hunter's Moon, of course, which he co-hosts with the uh, great Larry Weishoon. I certainly enjoyed the conversation with Blake today. Hope you all did as well. Uh, Unfortunately, that's going to do it for today's broadcast. I do want to say thanks to Rustic Reminders Taxidermy for sponsoring that segment. Uh, You can find either one of their shops. They've got one in San Antonio and one in Marion, Texas. They're in the Hill Country. Uh, Josh and Becky have been taking care of all of my taxidermy needs for about a decade now. Uh, they offer amazing work, fast turnaround time, and get this, taxidermists that answer the phone when you call. Isn't that a novel idea? Anyway, you can find them at gr8mounts.com. Uh, also, I want to thank all of our other sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. I want a garden with onions, carrots and beans with a couple back issues of field and stream for my white trash paradise. I want to spend my nights drinking Schaefer Light and smoking cheap cigarettes. I want a water bed to rest my head and a pit bull for my pet.